perhaps one you've you brought, or even your phone. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find our passage on 1,252-1252. We're going to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Uh, let's stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven." of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that in our time together, this might be one of those bits in which we learn about you, that we would leave this place changed. Fill us with your spirit, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. You'll remember that the church in Colossae, the Colossian church, was a church a lot like ours. It was a small church in a small town. Uh, Colossae had once been an important place. It had once been uh, a real player in the region, especially in the garment industry. They had a thriving garment industry uh, that was eclipsed later by other players, and they began to lose their importance and their financial uh, sustainability. It's a story of many small towns, isn't it? I mean, even when we think about when Vanity Fair pulled out of Atmore, how devastating that was uh, to Atmore. It's common in any small town uh, to dream about the good old days. Uh, you know, I've heard of those days. I wasn't here for that. But I've heard, I miss, I miss seeing Belleville with all the trees. I hear, I hear they, over, they were overhanging Belleville as you, as you drove down. How beautiful that must have been. You know, the days when downtown was thriving because Walmart wasn't here. And Neil and Miller won championships every year. That was pretty amazing. Things have changed. Some for the better and some for the worse. There are a lot of good things about what's going on in Bruton. We shouldn't be ones of despair. We shouldn't be ones who look at our, our current moment and think all is lost. Despair doesn't belong to the believer. In fact, there are a lot of great things that I love about Bruton. Um, we are a stable city. That, that's, that's, a, that's remarkable, by the way. Small towns generally are not stable. Across the board, more and more are moving to the big cities, and so small towns are drying up as, as the next generation leaves. And you have a brain drain where we train folks up, I think, uniquely well in small towns. And they go and serve in the big cities. But, you know, Bruton, we're doing well. We've attracted new industry. We have the world's best YMCA, period. We are thrilled as a couple, my wife and I, to have our children in the Bruton City Schools. We love this town. You know, it's easy, though, to think about the good old days uh, with improper memory, 
the Colossians might have wanted to go back to the good old days of Colossae. But you know, according to our text today, I think they had good reason not to want to go back to the way their lives used to be. You have to remember that this church was one of all new converts. None of them had been raised by Christian parents unless they were children in the church. Something had changed in their lives. Something had happened to them that completely changed who they were and even their destinies. They had gone from death to life. They had gone from hostile gods being reconciled to God. That the death of Christ had been applied to them in their conversion, and now they were seeking to remain steadfast in Christ and persevere while living like we do in an increasingly ungodly culture. It was a church a lot like ours. You know, the story of the Colossian church is our story as well. You know, as we think about our past, our present, our future, do we really want to go back to life before we were Christians? And I say a resounding no. I say a resounding no. How about you? One of the problems about memory is that it can be easily fooled. Uh, I would imagine many of you remember where you were when big events happened. I remember when Roe v. Wade was overturned. I remember that. I took a screenshot on my phone, by the way, of the first news line I saw. I remember where I was in 9-11. Um, many of you think I wasn't born then yet. Uh, I, was, I was in kindergarten. Uh, you know, not really. You may remember when JFK was assassinated, depending on how old you are, or when we landed on the moon, or the Challenger explosion. But essentially, several years ago, I, read a, I listened to a podcast where they were talking to an expert about uh, memories, especially memories of significant moments. And it was, a it was a long study, decades long. And they would interview people after some big event happened and say, tell me about where you were and how you felt. They would return 10 years later and ask the exact same questions, and then 10 years later and do it again and again and again. And do you know what happened? Their answers changed. Now, now it, it, when you think of those moments, you know exactly where you were. But in reality, we start to remember what we've remembered instead of remembering the event. And subtle changes start making their way in, and all of a sudden, we have the story wrong. The same might be true of us as we think to life before we were Christians. Indeed, if you, were, if you grew up in Bruton or some other fantastic small town in your youth, and yet you weren't a Christian you might want to reconsider how much you long for those days. The, the, the town might have been better, it might have been more thriving, it might have had more industry, that's true, but you were hellbound. Was that really a good time in your life? If you're a Christian now, I guarantee you that whatever struggles are going on in your life, life is a lot better now than it was then. You just might have been blind to it. You were blind to it if you were dead in your sins. See, the text tells us that before we were Christians, we were alienated from God. What does that mean to be alienated from God? It means to be estranged from Him. It wasn't because we had turned our back on, or excuse me, it wasn't because God had turned His back on us. Rather, the estrangement, the alienation was our fault because we inherited the sinful record of sin from Adam and Eve, and then we acted in the family line and did it all again every day that's not something I want to return to. I don't know how people navigate life without the Lord 
and, I, and I, I'm burdened for them navigating the day of judgment without Jesus. But Paul uses another phrase here in verse 21 to describe what life was like before we were Christians. He says that we were hostile in mind. That means that we weren't just apathetic to God, we were opposed to God. The inner disposition of our very lives was against the Lord. The word mind here does not just refer to our thoughts. It refers to every bit of who we are, mind, body, soul. We weren't apathetic. Rather, we hated God. Romans 8, 7 puts it this way. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that is someone who's not a believer, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. What does this look like in a person's life? Well, first, even though God had revealed himself to you before you were saved in his creation, you rejected him. You might have given lip service to him uh, making it, but, but you didn't really care. Even though God had been good to you, right? God causes it to rain on everybody's front yard, everybody's cornfield, whether they're a Christian or not. But you didn't thank him for it. Even though he had given you a conscience that hurt when he did something wrong, at least for a while, you embraced those things rather than running to God in repentance. You thumbed your nose at the idea of having to give an answer before the throne of God at the end of the days. The Bible says you were spiritually dead. Your opposition to God's rule and reign in your life was fierce and spirited. This was our reality before we were converted. I'm glad things have changed. We were born with this hostile mind, and it, and it resulted in us doing evil deeds. Which is the third phrase in verse 20 that concerns our lives before our conversion. No one had to teach us to sin. Did someone teach you to sin? They might. Your parents probably modeled it for you. I know we model it for ours. But you got that naturally. No one taught us that we should love it when we break God's rules. But we did. And sometimes we still do. Do we really want to go back to that? Paul says that we were alienated from God, hostile in our mind, and it resulted in evil deeds. Our lives were not good. We might have lived in a good home, in a good um, city. Uh, those are great common grace kind of things. Praise God for those, that the Lord would use those things to bring you to salvation. But we really were dead. We were enslaved to sin. We were in bondage to the flesh. You know, as we think about our lives before we were Christians, we should be careful. We should be careful not to idolize those days. Because that was a bad time for you. It's a bad time for me. But y'all, something has happened to change it all. If you're a Christian, at some point, things change for you. There was a moment when you passed from death to life, from hell-bound to heaven-bound, from enslaved to free, from guilty to forgiven, condemned to adopted. It all changed in a moment. Now, some of you know that day. Some of you know that moment. I was four. My dad led me to Christ watching Billy Graham on the TV. Uh, my wife, sometime in high school, she doesn't know exactly when. Maybe that's your story. You look back and say, sometime in here... Sometime in here, it became real to me, and I was born again. But whether you know it or you not, now there is a change. Look at verse 22. 
In the English, it says, he has now reconciled in his body. That's a good translation. Uh, but Greek, Greek does funny things with word order. In the Greek, there's a stark line of division between 21 and 22 of what our life used to be and now. Listen to it in the Greek. It says, now, but he has reconciled us. Now. Did you ever see Emeril Lagasse? And his, uh, you, know, you know what he said? Somebody tell me what he said. Bam, right? That's happened. Bam. The past is gone. The old has passed away. The new has come. We are new creations, new creatures in Christ. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Last week we talked about in verse 20 how God is reconciling all things to himself. As many commentators point out, Paul now moves from the general to the specific of what's out there to what's in my heart. He is doing this thing. He's, he is fixing all of creation and it'll come true on the day of Christ's return. But, but something has happened personally to those who have trusted in Christ that we have been reconciled. We who were hostile to God have been brought near to him. We who were doing evil deeds have now have been called holy and blameless. We who were alienated from God because of our sin now get to call him Abba, Papa. Something now, bam, has changed. How did he do it? Paul says here that it is through his body of flesh by his death. For there to be peace between us and God, someone had to bear on his body the penalty for our sins. We could not pay for it ourselves. Someone else had to do it. The blood of bulls and goats would never do it. In the Old Testament, they pointed to the one who would come, the true Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. He died on the cross. God himself took on flesh to die for you and be raised. And that's how we know we're forgiven. That's how we know this reconciliation that he proclaims to us. It's true. It has been validated by an empty tomb. We once were hostile to God, but now, bam, we have been reconciled to him. He has changed our inner disposition, killing the old man. We now belong to Christ because he died in your place. And slash but. This was for a purpose. Verse 22 continues, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This word presentation, you know, in the old south, uh, ladies would not be available to date until what? They were presented in society, at least in theory. Right. That's kind of language here. This formal presentation. And who is doing the presenting and to whom is it? It is the son presenting to the father his bride, which has been covered in his blood and washed clean of their sin. The question is, when is this presentation? Is it now? He is currently, or at our conversion, presenting us to the father. Father, this is... Uh, this is my, my co-heir. This, this is the one whom you have redeemed through me. And he is holy. She is blameless. They are above reproach. Or is it speaking of when Christ comes again and he presents his bride to all creation and to the Father, having been cleansed from their sin, not only legally but also in fact? I don't know. Now let's just, let's just be honest. Commentators are all over the page on this one. Which one is it? Both are true. 
Both are true. So we'll say yes. <laughs> because, because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, if you have the Spirit, then you are holy, blameless, and above reproach before the Father. There's nothing you can do to take that away or add to it. It's a done deal. And yet we look at our lives. You know, you've seen my life. I kind of live in front of you. And I need a lot of help. And you do too. There's that tension of, of what we've been declared and, and, the, and the fact that we still struggle with the flesh. But our righteousness is based on what Christ has done for us and what has been declared to be true of us. Not because we're good. Not because we could hold up to God some paltry effort. Hey, I gave this amount of money to X, Y, and Z and helped at the soup kitchen or didn't kill somebody. Instead, it's because Jesus was killed by the Father for you and then raised from the dead. Well, whether it's past, present, future, it's hard to know, all are true. Uh, we are called to live a holy life. These things are true of us so we could live a holy life. And y'all, there's, in the Protestant world, especially in the Reformed world, there's a breakdown right here. I don't think we focus enough on living a holy life. We, we, we get used to relying on the forgiveness that we know is there. Yes, believe it, it is there. But that's not an excuse. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? By no means, Romans 6 tells us. Christians, according to one commentator, this is his quote, Christians need to recognize that they have been reconciled to God in order to live a life that God approves. Let me read that again. Christians need to recognize that they have been reconciled to God in order to live a life that God approves. I like how 2 Corinthians 5.15 puts it. Uh, Paul writes that Christ died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So often we accept this declaration that we're free and blameless and holy without reproach, and then we live like those things aren't true of us. And we pursue the exact opposite, or at least flirt with those things. We, we've all seen a child who, you tell them not to do something, you know, don't throw that, don't throw that. And what are they doing? I'm not going to throw it. I'm not going to throw it. And they start going faster, I'm not going to throw it. Now, they're more overt in these things. <laughs> we're, a lot, we're a lot cleverer, aren't we, in how we flirt with sin. You know, in some families, uh, parents will tell their children their lives need to live up to the reputation of their last, last name. They've inherited a, a name, a last name that's been unsullied. It's a good reputation. They have borrowed trust because of the family they belong to. Now you need to live up to it. That, that's what we're called to do. We've been adopted by the Father. And now we're called to live like we've been adopted by the Father. That we're no longer slaves of sin. That we're no longer putting ourselves first. How's your pursuit of holiness going? I encourage you to ask that question. And that'd just be a great prayer to put to God. Lord, that's a scary prayer. Lord, Help me see my sin that I might live a holy life. So oftentimes I think that as we hide behind forgiveness, yes, hide in the cross, hide in the cross. That we think that doesn't mean that there's not work to be done. 
There's a lot of work to be done in our hearts. Uh, and, you know, and, and as you grow in Christ, he shows you more and more the weightiness and seriousness of your sin. That's one of the, one of the evidences of growing in Christ, is seeing your sins like, wow, I knew I was bad, but man, I'm really bad. Where did that thought come from? And you look back 10 years ago, and that never would have bothered you. That, that's, that's called growth. It's called sanctification. Well, so our past, we don't want to go back to that. The bad old days. Uh, the, the present, now, something has changed. We've been reconciled to God, and we have been presented, or will be presented, or both, uh, to the Father as wholly blameless without approach. But there's something here about our future. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Do you see the tension in this text? All this is true of you. You have been reconciled if. It's a big if. Like, okay, I'm listening now. When I was a kid, uh, my father, we entered, my father, I think he was at Wendy's, in one of those boxes you see, hey, give, sell us your information, and you might win something. Uh, and we sold his information to um, one of the local dealerships car dealerships, and my neighbor was listening to the radio, just happened to be listening to the radio, when they announced my father's name uh, for a chance to win a car. It was the Suzuki, the, the two-seater, the, I mean the, the two-door Suzuki thing, looks kind of like a Jeep, I don't know what they called those. Uh, what was that? Grand Vitara. So, uh, so he had a chance to, thank you sir, uh, so he had a chance to win this thing. So we showed up at Wendy's on Eastern Boulevard. And, uh, and they handed out uh, a paper bag to 20 people. And in 10 of those bags was a key. And in one of those bags was the key. And if you got the key, then you won. He had won if. He didn't win, uh, sadly. He didn't even make it into the top 10. Um, so Paul says that all these things are true of us if we continue in the faith. Okay, let's put some brakes on. All right, preacher. I thought we believed in once saved, always saved, as our Baptist brethren might style it, or we might say the perseverance of the saints, what's called eternal security, that once you're a Christian, you can't, you can't lose your salvation. John 6, that you can't be snatched out of the Father's hands or the Son's hands. And by the way, my Father and I are one. Right? I thought that Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will see it to his completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't those things true? Now, how is Paul saying these things are true? You've been reconciled if you continue. Doesn't that sound a lot like works? Well, it sounds like it, but it's not. But that does not remove human responsibility. As one dead person said, I can't remember who it was, but I know he's dead. The chief mark of a true Christian is perseverance. The chief mark of a Christian, a true Christian, is perseverance. Or the Anglican theologian J.I. Packer, the only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. There's a call for us to seek the Lord. And if we're seeking the Lord, it means that we have new life within us. And continue to seek Him because out of this new life you will continue to seek Him. And He will, by His Spirit, continue to make you more and more like His Son, Jesus. And He will finally acknowledge you as sons and daughters of the King when Christ returns. 
But do you remember the, the, the parable of the four soils in Matthew 13? It's an uncomfortable parable. There are these four soils. There's seed that is sown. One of them shows no growth. Three of them show growth. But only one is a true Christian because the middle two soils, they grow for a while and then they fall away. How do we, what, what do we, how do we make sense of that? What, if they fell away, then they were never a believer in the first place. Pursue Jesus every day. Rejoice in the reconciliation you have in Him because of what He has done for you. We are called to actively continue, to remain in the faith, actively fighting temptation, resisting false doctrine, doing battle with the evil one, and with our flesh, pursuing the Lord Jesus. And if these things are true in our lives, it's evidence that we belong to God. As we cling to His promises, and, and we have the inner testimony of the Spirit bearing witness with ours that we belong to God, and we see a changed life in us, and we know that we are His well, Paul concludes this passage saying that the gospel is being proclaimed to all creation. How can he say that? Well, think about it. He's now in, in Rome. He's in prison. And the gospel really has been proclaimed to basically the whole known world at this point. Now, obviously, there are folks in China at this point, Africa, that he didn't know about. But he's specifically talking about not just like geographically, but to all kinds of people, no matter their race, no matter their ethnicity, uh, whether they're white or black, Jew or Gentile, all creation has heard the gospel. It's going forth, and it's still part of our call as the church to go and descend and to pray that more and more might come to that reconciliation with the Father. See, he was a, a minister of the gospel, literally a servant. The Greek word is diakonos, from which we get deacon. He's a servant of the gospel. What a great thing to serve and for him and for us, because the gospel is not just an academic idea. Rather, it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, the Jew and the Gentile, because ultimately it points us to our hope in this life and the next, and that's the Lord Jesus. So, how do we conclude? I said conclusion twice. So be careful looking too far back into your past with too much fondness. For in Christ we have new life, new reconciliation with God. May we then continue in the gospel, walking with Christ until the day He presents us to the Father, holy, blameless, and without reproach. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Father, we thank You for the reconciliation that we have with You, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us, out of love. Oh Father, I pray that we would live up to our family name, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives that are holy and blameless and without reproach. We thank you, Father, that we are secure in your hands and nothing can snatch us away out of your hand. So, Father, help us to live like it. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.